0: So this morning, we are concluding the introductory teaching of Jesus, the first recorded sermon. Uh, This was on the side of a mountain. You might know in your Bibles, uh, there are little headings. We always say those are not literally the words of God. Those were the words of some dude from a long time ago who just said, here's where we're going. So in a move of genius, he said, well, I'm going to call this the Sermon on the Mount because it's on a mountain. So there we go. So this is the very first teaching discourse that we are introduced to with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've said this many, many times before. You must know the context. You must know what took place prior to Jesus speaking. His cousin, John the Baptist, ripped out of the wilderness. He was, he, he was an attention grabber. But he called absolutely everybody into the waters for the baptism of repentance. And where he really started stepping on toes is when he called the Pharisees to do the same. He literally laid the playing field bare and flat for the ministry and the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is safe to say that Jesus' teaching here really is unlike any other. Sadly, it is also unlike what we hear in many churches today. Jesus spoke to the heart, and he evoked deep conviction. He cut right through the veneer of religiosity and outward show of devotion to God and surface level acts of worship and he cut right to the heart. He also evoked anger, particularly from the religious leaders because of what we've just been saying. Jesus came on the scene and he literally upturned the religious establishment of the day. He exposed it for what it was. It was hypocritical. It was based on outward show and appearance. Jesus came to build a kingdom. He says, you do not merit entrance into said kingdom. You cannot do what your religious leaders are doing. You cannot get in because you're so good or you know the right people. You come in through poverty of spirit, knowing full well that you simply cannot earn your way in, that you need someone to rescue you. Now, Jesus is love, Jesus is healer. Love your neighbor is a key part of this sermon, but, friends, He is also king, and he is judge. And we cannot pick and choose which one we prefer over the other. We take them all. So let's look at our sermon text this morning. Matthew offers a very brief postscript, and I think what Matthew has to say is very, very important for us to see. Because what he says highlights really what we've been trying to say for the past uh, number of months. Beginning in verse 28 of Matthew 7, after Jesus is finished, we read this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes, as the scribes. Jesus came and Jesus taught as one who had authority to say what he said. He would say more than anybody else would say. And he wasn't like Their religious leaders. That statement is really important for us because the Sermon on the Mount is how we understand the entire New Testament. And how we understand the Sermon on the Mount should be through the lens of these two verses Matthew's little commentary on what we have just read. And so, first, I want to look at simply this concept the why behind the what. Oftentimes in counseling, a counselor is really looking for, okay, I can see what you're doing. I can see how you're behaving, how you're acting, how you're thinking. My job is to help you understand why you're acting in that way. What is behind what you're thinking or doing? And this is what I want us to look at this morning. Is the why... Behind the what? Why would Matthew say that Jesus spoke with authority? What's behind that statement? Because it's a lot more than he is merely a charismatic personality or a skilled communicator. There's a lot more to it than that. So for that, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9. This is commonly known as the Mount of Transfiguration. This is extremely important and it ties in directly with what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. The short version is simply this. Jesus, for a moment, his glory is revealed and he's accompanied in that moment by two very key figures from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. You might know that Moses is associated with the law and Elijah most often represents the prophets. So the idea here is you're looking at the law and the prophets and Jesus. Remember what Jesus said. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So Mark chapter 2, we'll pick it up in, Mark chapter 9, excuse me, we'll pick it up in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus uh, took with him Peter and James and John. So he took the inner circle and he said, I want you guys to come up with me. He took them up uh, a high mountain by themselves, and Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, and there appeared with them. Elijah and Moses conversing with Jesus. Remember, everything you read in God's word has a purpose. The purpose here is remarkable. But I must slip in a little character development. I often say we love Peter. We love Peter because we can relate to Peter on so many levels. Peter most often will speak long before he thinks what he's about to say. So now Peter is going to add his perspective and his commentary on this situation. So Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is it's good that we're here. This is a good thing, Peter says. Let's make three tents or shelters. One for you. One for Moses and one for Elijah. That's his way of showing respect and honor to these three important characters. But why was Peter saying this? For he did not know what to say, but that didn't stop him. He said it anyway because Peter has to say something. For they were terrified. As would you and I be in the moment. Remember fear is never a good motivator. Never a good spring. From which to speak. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to Him. Jesus over and over and over again is affirmed by his father beginning at his baptism. This is my son. Listen to him. God himself endorses what Jesus has to say. But what happens next is so important for us to see. In the middle of the confusion, in the middle of the glory, in the middle of Peter running his mouth, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Do you remember when Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets? God is so kind and gracious to give us visually what we need to see sometimes. There's Jesus. There's the law. There's the prophets. There's Peter running his mouth. But we don't, we're not worried about Peter in a moment. There's Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And there's Jesus. And in a very short amount of time, you don't see the other two. Because they pale in comparison. And so there's two things that I want to highlight this morning as we bring this whole sermon, this Sermon on the Mount to a close. And that's this two concepts, authority and glory. Authority and glory. Matthew's commentary was that Jesus spoke with authority. What Jesus was revealing was his own glory, the glory of God, the glory of the gospel. That's what we need to walk away with when we consider the truths in the New Testament. Now, as we know, later, Jesus, I mean, sorry, Peter, is now filled with the Spirit of God. Peter becomes the chief spokesperson for Christ amongst the apostles. In the book of Acts before Paul comes on the scene. I want you to see what he has to say in his second epistle. So this is Second Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 16. We're talking about authority. And we're talking about glory. Peter when he opens his second letter, when he's just kind of getting started and he's talking about the precious promises of God upon which we stand. Notice what Peter says, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This really matters. So Peter is now living in an era of persecution. We mentioned last week, Peter ultimately gave up his life. He was a martyr for the gospel of Christ, right? The the Peter that we knew in the Gospels is not the same Peter we know in the book of Acts. So Peter is now writing his final thoughts to the church and he says, guys, I just, as you see us apostles, no disrespect, falling like flies as we lay down our lives ultimately for the truth of the gospel, as we suffer as followers of Christ, he says, I just want to make sure you guys know we didn't follow some fancy script. We didn't follow some made-up story about who Jesus is. That would be actually pretty dumb on our part to suffer for what we know is a lie. Four, now watch what Peter does. He's going to tether what he experienced on that mountain. He said, when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. In whom I am fully and completely pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him On the holy mountain. The mountain isn't holy. But Jesus was there. So now it's set apart and sacred. But here's what I want you to see. And if we continue. And we have the prophetic word. More fully confirmed. What is he saying? Guys. We have the written word of God which is far more fully confirmed than my eyewitness. I'm telling you, we were there. As you all know, we know Jesus. We lived with him. We saw all of this. We saw him. We saw the glory. But you've got a tool in your toolkit which is more valuable than an eyewitness account. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all. That no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Authority and glory. Peter says "On no in no uncertain terms. What you need to pay attention to is actually right here. I am an apostle. You've seen me do some quite remarkable things lately. However, you would do far better to listen and to heed the written word of God as your authority. Now... I've shared with you on many occasions my own personal testimony, my own faith journey, if you will. I grew up in the church. I learned about Christ when I was young. I was surrounded by people who knew and loved the Lord. But as I got older, as I became a young adult, there's a very key aspect in our lives where if we grew up under the Lord's teaching, we have to own it. there's a point to where it becomes mine and it's not mom and dad's or anybody else's. It's mine. I've shared with you many times that when I was in college, my trust in the Bible as God's word was severely tested on a number of fronts. I would describe it as like a dark cloud over me. I grew up with this. But do I really believe it? Can I believe it? Can I trust it? Can I yield to what it says? I mean, how many times have we heard the tired argument? It's 2,000 years old. It's 4,000 years old. We've learned a lot since then. That matters. So, something that helped me while I was in college, it helped me begin to put a lot of this to rest was actually testimonies. As I recalled growing up in our church for a while, we had Sunday, Sunday evening service. It was always very casual and uh, we got to pick the hymns that we sang that week and they just played on demand. Um, and uh, but then there were testimonies. And I began to, re- to think about all the people that I knew and I still know who stood up and gave testimony to what God had done in their lives, to how God had intervened when they needed him. You know those stories where you find out there's a catastrophic financial need that you have and you do not have those resources, and then you check the mail and there's a letter anonymously with a check for about that amount. And you say, wow. But then you try to explain it in your mind. But then you look at the postscript, the, the, the stamp, on the, and you realize it was mailed before you even knew about this problem. Those are the stories that I grew up with. And I began to realize, look, I don't have all the answers, but this I know. God's truth stands. And I began to work my way through things in that way. Then I entered seminary. And it's a good idea to have a pastor who does believe that the Bible is God's word and for good reason. So in the first leg of my seminary, my thesis, I I wrote it on the inspiration and the authority of the Bible. Now, here's why I mentioned that. As I began doing a lot of research, uh, there was... Back in 1978, there was a convention to talk about the inspiration of God's word. But they focused on a word. And that word was authority. Because they did not want you to simply or merely believe that the Bible is actually the words of God. They want you to understand that by implication, if it is the word of God, then it has authority in our lives. That is, we are to believe and also obey. Obey the word of God. So I just want, one of the books that I read, I just want to read you, it's about a half a page. I want to read you, it's kind of dense, but follow what they're saying. The word canon, we often talk about the canon of scripture, which means, you know, the word of God. The canon signifying a rule or standard is a pointer to authority. Which means the right to rule and control. Authority in Christianity belongs to God in his revelation. Which means on the one hand, Jesus Christ, the living word. And on the other hand, Holy Scripture, the written word. As our prophet Christ testified that scripture cannot be broken. They went on to say the authority of Christ and of scripture are one. As our priest and king, Jesus devoted his earthly life to fulfilling the law and the prophets. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. I will fulfill them. Even dying in obedience to the words of Messianic prophecy. Thus, as he saw Scripture attesting him and his authority, so by his own submission to Scripture, he attested its authority. Remember, Jesus was obedient to death, even death on the cross. As he bowed to his Father's instruction given in his Bible, our Old Testament, so he requires his disciples to do... Not, however, in isolation, but in conjunction with the apostolic witness to himself, which he undertook to inspire by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, we're almost done. Christians show themselves faithful servants of their Lord by bowing to the divine instruction given in the prophetic and apostolic writings, which together make up our Bible. By authenticating authenticating each other's authority, Christ and Scripture coalesce into a single fount of authority. The biblically interpreted Christ and the Christ-centered, Christ-proclaiming Bible are from this standpoint one. And from the fact of inspiration, we infer that what Scripture says... God says, so that from the revealed relationship between Jesus Christ and Scripture, we may equally declare that what Scripture says, Christ says. James Montgomery Boyce, 1984. Right? So, here's my question Will you listen? When you read God's Word, when you reflect on God's word, when you study God's word, when you receive the word preached and proclaim, will you listen to God's word? Remember, we noted in the gospels, Jesus would often say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus goes back up to heaven in the book of Revelation. What do we read? Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. Saints, this is God's word. And we cannot pick and choose the parts that we like and create our own golden calf. We take all of it, and that is where true freedom begins. When we submit and we surrender ourselves to God's truth as he reveals it and himself. Luke chapter 24 Remember this key passage, how the spirit always testifies to Jesus. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 25, you might remember there were some disciples who were dejected. Jesus had died. They thought he was going to take out the Romans and everything was going to be great. But now he's dead and in a tomb. So they're walking on their way to Emmaus. And guess who joins them? And he's asking them why they're so downcast. That's the problem. Why are you so downcast? And they're like, well, haven't you heard? You know, Jesus, he was going to do all these great things and now he's dead. And then he says, verse 25. And Jesus said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Glory. And beginning with Moses, the law and the prophets, Elijah, he interpreted to them in all scripture, the things concerning himself. Why? Because Jesus is the one who would fulfill the law and the prophets. Now I have a more practical question. Not just will you listen, but will you obey? That's the question. Remember Luke's parallel presentation. Chapter six. Jesus. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And you don't do what I say. Like, you know, that's a farce, right? Thank you for calling me Lord, Lord. But if you don't conjoin that with obedience, your confession is rather empty. Notice this in the book of Acts. This is Paul's last time seeing the Ephesian elders. Oh, it's a beautiful passage. Paul recounts all the ways that he had invested into the church in Ephesus. Through tears, he would plead with them about the word of God, about the truth of God. He would do so publicly. He would do so from house to house about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, look, I didn't just pick out my favorite passages. I testified regarding the whole counsel of God. All of it. All of it. And then he said this. I am free of the blood of all men, because I faithfully showed you God's truth. Once I, the messenger, give the truth, it is now on the hearer to add, to answer the two questions: Will you listen, and will you obey? So, verse thirty-two. That's what we're looking at. Oh, I love this! Now I commend to you. I commend you to God. And to the word of his grace. Do you hear what Paul just said? I commend you to God himself. I have no one, nothing higher than God himself. I will commend you. Your livelihood. Your well-being. Your spiritual maturity in your service. I'm commending you to God himself. And, and, and. To the word of his grace. Which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see the word of grace. It gives life and it builds us up. You always want to build a house on a solid foundation. The word of God gives us that foundation to correctly understand who God is and what life should look like. Jesus said in John chapter 8, he says, you are my disciples indeed if you follow, if you continue or abide in my word. The truth matters. Saints, I want you to see these key truths. What what Matthew has to say is so important. Jesus spoke with authority. So I leave you with this one idea, this one concept. Do you remember Genesis, the book of beginnings? Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember the fall? What did Satan tempt Eve and Adam with? He didn't parade sex, didn't parade money, drugs, or rock and roll, obviously. Didn't parade any of those specific things. He just left them with a question. Did God really say it? Yea, hath God said? Saints, I am telling you. From generation to generation... That is the one question. Paul says, We are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. It never changes. To the young people among us, I say humbly every generation asks the same, says the same thing. Yeah, we know a little bit better than, than mom and dad and everybody else. We're a little more enlightened. We see things, we're, we've evolved as people more now than we were back then. It's the exact same question. Did God, did he really, did he, I mean, I know he said it, but did he mean it? Like, did he mean it in the way that you know it? Because you're a little more advanced, you're a little more enlightened, you're a little more developed, you know more. Really, do you really want to go back and listen to what he had to say? Saints, Satan's, one of Satan's biggest and most powerful temptations is to have us question God's word. And I can tell you, God is altogether faithful. He did not write with a pencil so he could flip it over and erase it once we'd learned a little more along the way. He never did that. We can believe him. We can trust him. In the same way as when he says, whosoever believes in me will not perish. I'm banking my eternity on that. I will surely live accordingly. So I have a short video clip that I want to show. I'm going to close out in a word of prayer first. Um, So next week, we'll take uh, one more spin through the Sermon on the Mount and bring it all together. Just highlight some things because our goal is to go through in a detailed fashion, but I also don't want you to lose the forest for the trees, as they say. The Sermon on the Mount, I commend it to you. It speaks so clearly and powerfully to our need from generation to generation. And it sets up our understanding of the gospel and what the kingdom of God looks like. So would you bow your heads and just join me for a word of prayer? Most gracious heavenly father. Thank you. Thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for your spirit Whom you've given to us. Thank you for the sure foundation of the gospel. Oh Lord I pray. That as we walk with you. We would learn to trust you. More and more. That we would learn. To not merely be hearers of the word. But doers of the word. That we would indeed listen. That's the first step but that we'd also obey and bring our lives into conformity with your truth. Lord, thank you so much for the truths that you've given us, even in this short section of scripture. Help us, strengthen us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to be selfless. Help us to be considerate. Help us to be generous. Help us to be others focused. Help us to dwell on the love that you have for us and that you show to us. And from that foundation to love other people well. Help us as we pursue righteousness. As we stand on the truth without apology. Without embarrassment. And without hesitation. Thank you for the clarity and the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. Of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Father, we always pray that if there's even but one person who has not come to the realization that they have a problem and can't fix the problem, that they would see Jesus as the all-sufficient answer. And turn to him and put their faith, their confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Crucified, buried, and risen, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. O Lord, we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So I played this clip before. It is one of my all-time favorites, and I think it just ties in so well. It's about five minutes, but it won't feel like five minutes. It ties in so well to this whole concept of who Jesus Christ is and why it is that when we hear him, we walk away and say, well, he speaks with authority. So here we are.
1: The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings, and he is a lord of lords. Now that's my king. David said to heaven's Declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. No means of measure can define His limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of His soulless supply. No barriers can hinder Him from pouring out His blessing. Well, well, He's enduringly strong. He's entirely. Sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. And he's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent, where he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in high criticism. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. And that's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and He saves. He guards and He guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young, He serves the unfortunate, He rewards the aged, He rewards the diligent, and He beautifies the meek. Do you know Him? Well, my King is a key of knowledge, He's a wellspring of wisdom, He's a doorway of deliverance, He's a pathway of peace, He's a roadway of righteousness, He's a highway of holiness, He's a gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. Yeah. Is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he. He's indescribable, he's indescribable, yeah. Yeah. He, he's incomprehensible, he's invincible, he's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens of heaven cannot contain him, let alone a man explaining him. You can't get him out of your mind. you can't get him off of your hands, you can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah! He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him and there'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him and he's not gonna resign. That's my. That's my. Thing. Time, time is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The glory is all His. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forever, then Amen. amen.